What happened? You were so depressed about the markets that you decided you might as well come here and be here today. What's going on? We have spent so much time together. I think this must be, I think, the 17th or 18th lecture that I've brought here to the Dallas community. And we've spent a considerable amount of time examining a phenomena that's confronting the Jewish people. Tremendous push to convert the Jews, and you know, you see it today, all of you do. I mean, here you are, whether you came in from Dallas, some of you here came in from as far away as Corpus Christi, but you're, you're coming from this side of the Mason-Dixon, you know about Jewish evangelism. If you look at 27 books in the New Testament, the two authors that make use of our Jewish Bible most are Matthew and Paul. If you open up a Jews for Jesus uh, booklet on why you should convert to Christianity, they call it Yeshua or some other book like that. I mean, they're telling you that if you read your own Bible, Jesus is there. They're using the text of the New Testament. Have you ever read the book of Isaiah, sir? He's bouncing off every page. So if you open up the book of Isaiah, Jesus is there. He's bouncing off every page. Do you know that? I can prove to you Jesus from your Old Testament. He's there. Have you ever opened up that Torah scroll, sir? Have you ever read the book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah speaks about a new covenant. Do you know that he's speaking to you? And Matthew makes enormous use of this. And when I say... Enormous use, I don't mean just in quantity, constant quoting from the Bible, but also the kind of quoting. Because Matthew and Paul make the statement that it can be proven from the Jewish Bible that Jesus is the Messiah. I want to give you an example of how other New Testament authors use the Jewish Bible, but in a more passive manner. In the book of Luke, now we say the book of Luke, and if I ask you, if I turn to the audience right now and ask you, who wrote the book of Luke, you're going to tell me? Luke, Luke aren't you? <laughs> uh, you fell for it too. Uh, let me just a little point here, a little footnote here I think is important. It's not like the book of Luke ends, yours truly Luke, okay? <laughs> it's not like the book of Matthew ends, sincerely yours with best wishes for a happy and healthy New Year and a kosher Passover. Well, that certainly is not going to put in there, but Matthew... Okay. <laughs> it is a Catholic tradition that Matthew authored the book of Matthew and Luke authored the book of Luke and when people say to me when Messianic Jews say to me that, hey Matthew says this and this and Matthew Levi that's it. Matthew Levi is one of the disciples who according to Catholic tradition authored the book of, of Matthew Matthew Levi was a Jew and he lived there and he saw it and he was this and he was a, well, who wrote the book of Matthew? Well, well, he'll tell you Matthew, but how do you know that from the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church that you say you despise, the Catholic Church that you claim is the whore of Babylon described in the book of Revelation. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke, we find a story, and that is Jesus comes to the Galilee, namely the very southern edge of the Galilee, where there's a very famous city. Anyone know what city that would be? The city of... Nazareth, exactly. And he is handed a scroll. Now I want you to see how the author of the third gospel, that's why scholars usually don't call it Luke, but call it the third gospel. The author of the third gospel, therefore, has, is, simply wants to shape Jesus into our Bible. He's handed a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he begins to read it in the synagogue. Now, people are very amazed, because the literacy rate at that time was not high. So the fact that this carpenter's son was able to simply open a, a scroll, open a scroll of the prophet, and simply read it was something of amazement. How did he learn to do this? Look at the text that Luke has Jesus read, 
And notice what Luke does with our Bible. And it's very subtle. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Some of you I heard murmuring in the audience. You realized what Luke had done. Very passive. If you had a Christian study Bible, you know what that is? A Christian study Bible is a Bible that has the cross references. It will tell you if the New Testament quotes something from the Jewish scriptures, it tells you precisely where you can find it. And if you had a Christian study Bible, it would tell you that you could find this text in the book of Isaiah. Well, that's from the Jewish Bible. Chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. But take a look at what Luke did. You see, the original text of Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's on the right side. By the way, that's King James Version. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, tell me, what did Luke do with our Bible? What did Luke do with the book of Isaiah? Isaiah is speaking here about himself. Isaiah is preaching some wonderful news to the Jewish people who were in tyranny. Just one group of Jews, no many. This section of Isaiah is reassuring Jews who lived during the time of Assyria. He was reassuring Jews who lived during the time of Babylon. He was reassuring Jews who are alive today, waiting and hoping for the coming of the Messiah. And he is there to bring good news to who? People who all they see is bad news. That's who Isaiah is speaking to. He's looking at people who all they see around them is difficulty and tragedy. And he's saying, look, I know you're poor, I know you're meek, I know you're humble. I want to talk to you. There's salvation at the end of the road. That's why if you look towards the middle of this chapter, he uses the words of Isaiah 53. Those who are familiar with the chapter will recognize what I mean. He says in verse 9, And the sons of them who afflicted you, same word as Isaiah 53, will come bowing to you, will build your cities and so on. So Isaiah is speaking here about his extraordinary ministry to preach comfort, Nechama. Luke needs to take a text from the Jewish Bible and make it appear to the person who's not erudite. This is about Jesus. How does he reshape the text? He has the phrase, and recovery of sight is blind, so that you can later show that Jesus Exactly. What he does is he simply interpolates that he is a healer of the blind. And if you look throughout the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7 and so on, and, and, um, and 18, you know, there's a story. It talks about him, Jesus. What does Jesus do? Well, one of the things he does is provide salvation, and he's a healer of the blind. What it is, it's a subtle use of the text of our scriptures, reshaping it, inserting a clause which simply does not exist and suddenly, you have a Christological text. And some of you may be saying, so, well, this is, doesn't seem like a huge deal. It is. Because Christians all the time, when I'm speaking to them, they're always saying to me, hey, who is this talking about? Well, their minds have been shaped by this text. So many of you have studied with me in the past, and so many of you understand how Matthew has altered the Jewish scriptures. I mean, we've talked about this in old I mean, It starts right from the very, very beginning of the book of Matthew. I mean, the first words of the whole New Testament is, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he wants to show that Jesus is 
proper, is the ideal candidate to be the Messiah based on his genealogy. And we've talked about this in the past, and we're not going to go into it tonight. He then moves on in chapter 1 saying, hey, Jesus was born of a virgin. That's not an arbitrary event that he was born of a virgin. Absolutely not. It was foretold in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. Many of you here tonight are very familiar with these texts. It wasn't just an arbitrary event that he was born in the city of Bethlehem. I could prove to you from Micah 5, 2 or 5, 1, depending if you have a Christian or Jewish Bible. He was a resident of Nazareth, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. As it says in the Jewish Bible, he shall be called the Nazarene. Where it says this, nobody's quite sure. But here we got Matthew saying, it says it, the prophets foretold it. One of the great ironies here is Matthew's purpose for writing. The Matthew's raison d'etre, his reason for being was to convert Jews to Christianity, to convince Jewish people from the Jewish scriptures that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That is the whole purpose of why Matthew is written. One of the ironies is there is no human being in history that is more responsible for the resistance of the Jewish people to convert to Christianity than Matthew. There is no person in history that is going to be more responsible for Jews to be absolutely certain that Jesus is not the Messiah. The New Testament is a document that's not dependable, it's not to be relied on, than Matthew. Because what he did, as you know, is alter the Jewish scriptures to make it appear Christological. And although today other religions, non-Christian religions, are wreaking havoc on the Jewish people. You go to Boulder, Colorado, which is the Jerusalem, which is the borough park of the New Age movement, and you can get a minion for Mincha in any one of these little pyramids, all, you know, okay? <laughs> They've got all these centers, these Kripalu centers up in Massachusetts with gurus and Gandhis and Shmatas and I don't know what. And the Jews. You walk into an airport and you have, you know, these Hare Krishnas running around, you know, stay with orange pajamas. They are able to evangelize Jews very easily. The church has enormous difficulty to convert Jews because it makes a devastating mistake of saying, we can prove to you Jesus from the Old Testament. Had Matthew not existed, had that whole ideal of altering the text not existed, the Jewish people might more willingly have converted. It's just very, very interesting. And those Jews who do convert, those Jews who do become Christians are those amongst us who know little, who know almost nothing about the faith they're being asked to abandon. That's why Christianity did succeed in some measured sense in Western Europe, for instance, during the 18th and 19th century in countries like Germany, but did not succeed in Eastern Europe. The Jewish people in this room, if you're Jewish and you're sitting in this room here, and you're an American, I would guess in all likelihood your grandmother or great-grandfather came to this country somewhere between 1880 and 1924. In 1880, there were about 280,000 Jewish people in the United States. By the time 1924 rolls around and the doors for immigration to the United States are sealed shut, there will be over 4 million Jewish people in the United States who are coming not from Germany as the early immigration did, but from the Eastern Europe. And those people were not people who were converting to Christianity because they were simply much more faithful Jews, much more religious Jews, much more knowledgeable Jews, and therefore the church will be completely unsuccessful in evangelizing them, although God only knows they tried. In Judaism, suicide is absolute murder. In fact, the case could be easily made that 
it is a greater sin to murder yourself than somebody else. Because Adam Karayv Eitzel a person is closest to himself, and therefore that act is an act of murder. It's absolute sin. It's just like any other kind of murder, if not worse. And therefore, throughout Jewish history, Jewish people are never given a heter, they are never given permission in halacha, in Jewish law, to commit suicide, with one exception. There's one exception where Jews were permitted to commit suicide. Does anyone know what that is? Yeah? Yeah, yeah. What happened was, if, if you knew that the Crusades were coming to your city, and you were going to be tortured into conversion, and you were terrified that you might not be able to withstand the Crusades, you may not be able to withstand uh, the Inquisition, you may not be able to withstand St. Thomas Torquemada's um, torture wheels and so on, you were allowed to commit suicide to prevent yourself from perhaps becoming an idol worshiper. Those of you who study history, particularly the Crusades, uh, the worst of the Crusades, of course, was the third. And just for an example, it was March 16th of 1190 in the city of York, northern England. An entire city, men, women, children, committed suicide inside what's called the Castle Keep. They knew they were going to be tortured. How could they be so sure that heaven wasn't waiting for them behind that cross? They knew it. How could they be so certain that the teachings of Christianity had nothing to do with the teachings of the Jewish scriptures? How could they be so sure that there was no relationship between Jesus of Nazareth and the Messiah prophesied and taught and preached by the Jewish prophets because of the works of Matthew and Paul? Now, whereas Matthew was an utter failure in his attempt to evangelize the Jews, Paul, on the other hand, was an absolute success. Because Paul's audience was not Jews. Paul was a minister to the Gentiles. He was coming to the Goyim, to the Gentiles. And Gentiles lacked discernment. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to study this subject this evening. Now, Paul's timing was, of course, extraordinary. And you need to have a little bit of knowledge of history of that period during the first century. It was really the very end of the first century B.C. and first century to appreciate the subject. It's important for you to know that during the first century, the Jewish people had grown in population enormously, predominantly as a result of conversion to Judaism. It's a subject I've touched on before, but it's well worth explaining to this audience here. There is a phenomenon in Jewish history which we don't quite understand why this is, but whenever the Jewish people endure persecution, there is an enormous amount of conversion to Judaism. If you were going to pick a time when to make Aliyah, the first century was not the best time. This was an extremely difficult period for the Jewish people. And as a result, enormous amount of conversion to Judaism. Now, it wasn't just the interest in Judaism that Gentiles possessed, but it was also the Greco-Roman paganism that was dying. It was simply passing away. I mean, when, when, when the Roman emperor is electing a horse to the Senate, how from can you be, right? I mean, how seriously could you take? So we have this amazing synergetic effect. We have this combination of two forces where, number one, Judaism was a faith that was growing an interest amongst the Gentile community, and the paganism, the Greek and Roman paganism, was something that was passing and dying away. People simply were not taking it seriously. If a Gentile was interested in converting to Judaism... 
what two things might get in the way? What, what might be the speed bumps here? What might prevent a Gentile from converting to Judaism? I mean, I basically like the idea of one God. I, I, you know, it's all very nice, you know, one God, a personal God. It's a wonderful thing, but I don't know. There's a couple of things that get in the way. Yes? Circumcision will definitely be a speed bump in conversion. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's something that at least half the population is going to read. So, circumcision, there's, there's one right there. What's the second? Yeah. Keeping the mitzvot. So, Gentiles were grasping at this. They wanted it. But if a Gentile was considering converting to Judaism, the two things that might get in the way is certainly circumcision, keeping the mitzvot. That's a little difficult. And that's where Paul comes in. Paul says, hey... You don't have to keep the mitzvot, you Gentiles. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to get circumcised. And by the way, even though you don't have to get circumcised and you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to do it. In fact, if you put your faith in it, if you put your trust in it, it's clear that you don't have salvation. You will be an elect. You'll be chosen. You will be part of And this is God's plan. You are going to be drawn in. You're going to be grafted into the olive tree. You know, you are going to become a branch just like the natural branches. You are going to be chosen by God. In fact, it is a part of God's plan. And Paul makes this point, but he goes a little further. Because he's going to show his audience that this is not just an accident of history that Gentiles who are not a part of God's people, are going to be called God's people. Those who are not chosen are going to be chosen. Those who are not elect are going to be called the elect. But in fact, did you know that your prophet, sir, the Jewish prophet, the book of Hosea, foretold that in fact those who are not God's people, the Gentiles, the Goyim, are being called in. The case could easily be made that the book of Romans is the most important of Paul's writings. It would be a, the book of Romans is uh, the, essentially the constitution of Christianity. And in chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, look what Paul does. Even us, whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea. Hosea is a Jewish prophet. And what does he say there? I will call them my people, and this is a quote from the Jewish scriptures, who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Here's an open proof from the book of Hosea, from the Jewish scriptures, that in fact it was foretold that Gentiles who are not God's people wouldn't come of God's people. They will have full equality. You don't have to keep the mitzvot. And remember, Paul does not believe in the Trinity. Okay, Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul is describing Jesus as the son of a woman, not the son of a virgin. Paul is not celebrating Christmas. He doesn't know about Christmas. Christmas is not going to be inculcated by Christianity to many, many years later. Paul is not venerating Mary. He never does it once in any of his 13 letters. Paul isn't celebrating Easter with Easter, but that's not a part of it. Paul doesn't see Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. He's a radical monotheist. What is Paul quoting from? What is he talking about? Actually, if you again had a Christian study Bible, and you were looking at Romans chapter 9, verse 24 through 26, 
The Christian study Bible would tell you that you could find this in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23. One little warning point here, and that is, it, although in a Christian Bible, this is Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, those of you who go home tonight and open up a Jewish Bible, it's not verse 23, but it's verse 25, and the verses are divided between chapter 1 and chapter 2 a little differently, but it is the same verse, just so you're not confused that when you do a little research on this. What is going on in the book of Hosea? What's taking place here? Now, you need to know a little bit of history. You know, I, I'm sure many of you here know that I, I travel throughout this country quite a bit and I speak to a lot of people. One of the biggest complaints that I get from Jewish people, I think, is, I'm sure you've heard it, Jewish people say to me, why don't the Jews get along better? It's true, you ever hear that? They don't get along so well. Why not? We have so many anti-Semitic in the world. So many people hate our guts. Why don't the Jews get along better? This one doesn't recognize that one. He's not Jewish enough. This conversion is not, not Jewish enough. He's not a rabbi enough. This one's not Jewish enough. And it bothers Jews. And they complain. They speak about it. It's terrible. It's disgusting. They can't take it. Most Jews, I don't know about your experience, but most Jews are for Jewish unity. As long as we do it my way, but they're for Jewish unity. And there's no question One can easily make the case, however, that there's probably no time in Jewish history since King Solomon where the Jews got along better. And one of the most difficult periods in Jewish history is a civil war, a split of the Jewish people. And it occurred after the reign of Solomon. Solomon's son was a man named Rehovah, and he was a king who was not righteous. And he was a king that was confronted with a problem in the very beginning of his reign. Rehovah did not get the honeymoon. He didn't get that little time where Congress and the Senate was going to leave him alone, you know, to give him a little time to adjust to his new job. The moment he sits on the throne, he's got problems. One of the problems he's going to be confronted with is, we need you to make our lives easier. You know, Jewish people living under his father, King Solomon, it was difficult in some ways. King Solomon built the temple, it was very expensive taxes needed to be raised for the building fund. And the Jewish people wanted Rehavim to make their lives easier. And Rehavim did not know what to do. He goes to his friends and he asks them for advice. What should he do? And his friends say to him, don't give them anything. I'm, I'm paraphrasing big time here, but he says, if you give them a finger, they're going to want a hand. Don't make their lives easier. He then turns to the sages of Israel, to the elders of the Jewish people, and goes to them for advice. And they said to him, go out and comfort the people. Go out and tell them that things were going to get okay. One of the great tragedies that would lead to the split of the Jewish people is Rehavim listened to his friends rather than the sages of Israel. And there was a split where there was a kingdom of Israel. Ten tribes break away under Yeruvim ben Yavot. They break off and they become the ten northern tribes and they are constantly in idolatry. They will go to war with the kingdom of Judah. The only tribes who remained faithful to Rehavim was his own tribe, obviously, the tribe of Judah. And if you're a Kohen or a Levi, and you're sitting in this room right now, you come from the tribe of Levi, and you too were faithful and loyal to Rehavim, and also a part of Benjamin. Benjamin was a very small tribe. It was small from the beginning, and it got really small at the end of the book of Judges. So it was a very small number of, from the tribe of Benjamin that remained faithful. And the split was horrific. And whereas in the kingdom of Judah, there were many, many kings who were faithful, and also others that were wicked, 
This was not the case in the kingdom of Israel. Every single king amongst the kingdom of Israel was sinful and led his people in the northern kingdom to iniquity. And the prophets were sent to them, many of them. One of them was a man named Hosea. Hosea. Hosea's primary audience was this northern kingdom of Israel. Now eventually they're going to be carried off about the year 722 BCE according to secular chronology. According to Jewish chronology, move it forward 166 years. Who is Hosea? Hosea was the Godel Hador. Hosea was the great sage of the generation. Hosea was a holy man of God who lived every moment dedicated to the Almighty. And it came time for Hosea to get married. It's single, Hosea. It's time to get married. So you think, who would Hosea marry? He's probably a man of such great stature, a man who was so faithful, such a great rabbi amongst the Jewish people, a man who literally, the Ruach HaKodesh, God's spirit, moved within him. You would think, who's going to be his wife? You figure he would go to Beis Yaakov somewhere, and he would find a girl there, he would go to some very great yeshiva for women, and he'd find a girl there who was so faithful, so there. That's what you think would be the ideal candidate to be the bride of a prophet. And what does Hashem say to him? No, you're not going to Beis Yaakov. You're not going to a seminary in Israel. I want you to marry a prostitute. A prostitute? The good Lador? The giant of the generation? The person who's the leader of Israel should marry a woman of ill repute? So her name is Gomer, marry her. And why? Because she is a symbol for, of the adultery of the Jewish people. As you know that the Jewish people are called, referred to as God's wife, but a wife who is wayward, a wife who turned their back on their husband God. Oh, you're going to have children too. I'm going to bless you with children, but I'm going to, let me give you some names that I want you to call them. You're going to have a son. His name is going to be... You think you're going to call him Moshe? <laughs> you think you're going to call him Dovido? No. You're going to call him Jezreel to remind you to avenge the blood of Yehu. And, and by the way, it also signifies the fact that you're not going to be seated. Nothing is going to happen with you. You're going away. You're not going to prosper. The covenant is not going to move through you. We're going to have a daughter after that. And you know what the name of that child is going to be? Lo Rachamu. Call the Lo Rachamu. You know what Lo Rachamu means? I'm not going to have pity on you. You kingdom of Israel, you've turned your back on God. Because of your iniquities, because of your sinfulness, I'm going to turn away from you. There's no pity. You're going to be carried off. Oh, and you're going to have a third child, son, and we're going to call his name Lo Ami. You're not my people. I think some of you are starting to find out what has been done to our Bible. You kingdom of Israel, you the northern tribes are not going to be my people because you are going to be carried off by Assyria and you're going to be carried off to northern Turkey. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, one of the greatest mysteries of Jewish history is whatever happened to those ten northern tribes. We do not know. But there is a promise here. The way all the prophets spoke, and first the prophet smacks you in the face, and you feel so small. That's the function of the prophet. Not to tell you how terrific you are. I've said this before. All the wicked people in the Bible are only saying nice things about the Jews, but the prophets are constantly criticizing the Jews. Yes, uh, Korah said all the Jewish people are a holy nation. That's right. But Isaiah is saying, you, you've turned your back. You're worse than a dog. You're worse than a, than, than a chamor. You're worse than a donkey. But you know what the prophets always do? They come over and they say, I want to give you a kiss. I want you to know that there is hope at the end. Isaiah says it in chapter 1, verse 15, 16, 17, 18. Come, let's reason together. 
If you turn away, if you turn away from your iniquity and you clothe the naked, take care of the widow, take care of the poor, although your sins are red like scarlet, I'm going to make them as white as snow. And what, by the way, what the prophets never say is, just all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're going to be saved, not once. Why not? The prophets told us that one day, the kingdom of Israel, the Jewish people who lived in the northern kingdom, they're going to be restored too. This is found in a number of places in the Jewish Bible. The most famous, by the way, is the text so many of you are familiar from. It's from Ezekiel chapter 37. God says to Ezekiel, take two pieces of wood, take two sticks. One of them write the kingdom of Israel, one of them write the kingdom of Judah. Put the two sticks in your hand, close it. Now open it, they'll become one. When the Messiah comes, what is going to happen? The kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. And that's what Hosea says. Later on in Hosea, and this is what Paul is quoting from. Remember when I said, Jezreel, you're not going to be seated well? You are going to be seated. Remember when I told you that you Jews from the north, I'm not going to have Rachmanis on you? Lo Rachmu, I'm not going to have pity on you? Rachmanis I'm going to have. I'm going to have that for you. And you remember when I said to you, Lo Ami, you're not my people? Ami, you're going to be called my people, the sons of the living God. Take a look with me at the text. Take a look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 25 in the Jewish Bible. And I will sow her for myself in the land. This is all messianic. And I will also have compassion. There's the Rachmu, compassion on you. On her who had not obtained compassion. And I'll say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, thou art my God. Is it indeed the case that Hosea is speaking about Gentiles, as Paul would have us believe, being called in, who would replace Israel, who would become the elect of God, who would become chosen, not by keeping the law, not by keeping the mitzvot, not by getting sick. Is it speaking about Gentiles? No. No. What is it speaking about? Jews. How do you play with my Bible? How do you change the Word of God? How do you misrepresent the text? And if you're going to do that, if you're going to alter the Jewish scriptures, do you think I want anything to do with this? Are you beginning to understand why Matthew would fail and Paul would succeed? Look at the discernment of their followers. Remember I told you earlier that Matthew attempts to prove the virgin birth from the book of Isaiah, chapter 714. You know this, and I'm not going to go into how Matthew altered the word Alma, which means young woman. The word actually is Alma, the young woman, to mistranslate it as virgin. In fact, the text in Isaiah 7 is there is a war. Remember we talked about the kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah. They go to war with each other. The king of Judah at that time was a man named Ahaz, who was very, very wicked. And he's surrounded by two kingdoms. Number one, the kingdom of Israel, their enemy. And number two is Syria. Not uh, Syria, but Syria. Surrounded. And he's in very deep trouble. He doesn't want to trust God. He just wants to get out, like Mar- the Marco says. Remember, they just wanted to get out of the Philippines. They didn't get out. Get me out. Just get the shoes. Go. That's it. Right? <laughs> 
Isaiah comes to him and says, Hey, I've got a prophecy. I want you to know that God is going to preserve you, is going to protect you. Oh yeah, two kingdoms, two big armies surrounding you. Don't worry about it because the Almighty is not going to allow them to harm you. By the way, this is not because Ahaz was so righteous. It's not because he deserved this kind of a treatment, but God owed him it because God had promised his great-grandfather David, I'm not going to let anything happen to your dynasty. Oh yes, I'll punish the kings personally with the rod of men and the rod of children, but I'm not going to take the dynasty away. Ahaz had that divine protection. And therefore, the sign is not the birth of the child, but the sign is the next verse. Take a look with me at the bottom of the page. You see there Isaiah 7, verse 14, and 15, 14 through 16? Right on the bottom of the same page. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. There's the verse. But is that the sign, the birth of the child? No. The sign of the next two verses. He shall eat curds and honey, which means you're going to be free because you're going to be eating some really luxurious foods, which you don't eat when you're under siege. By the time he knows to, how to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. What does Isaiah say to Ahaz? You have nothing to worry about. I know you have two kings that are surrounding you, ready to destroy you, to bring down Jerusalem. Don't worry, God is going to protect you. How will you know? Behold is a child who was born to a young woman, who actually is Isaiah's wife. We're going to see them coming together in Isaiah chapter 8. And before the child knows to reject bad and choose good, meaning before the child becomes mature, knows to reject bad, choose good, these two kingdoms that you dread, they're going to already be out of here. They're going to abandon this land. What is the sign? The sign is not the birth or conception of the child, as Matthew would have us believe. The sign is the maturity of that child years later. Big question that you should all be asking me. Hey, Rabbi Singer, I've got a big problem with this. If the sign is the maturity of the child, why tell me about the birth altogether? What do we need Isaiah 7.14 for? What is the purpose of this verse? If really it's all about when that child gains his superego, the moral precepts of the mind, right? If that's the sign, so what's the big deal about the child being born? Missionaries would certainly make a very big deal about it. There must be something else here. What's the sign? What is the purpose of this verse? We know this. Those who look at the Bible and trust it, we know that there's not an extra word, not an extra verse in the Bible. The Bible puts it there. There's a reason for it. Well, if the sign is the maturity of the child, all we need is verse 15 and 16. We don't need verse 14 with a whole verse about, she's a woman's going to have a baby. and call me. What is this about? Well, the answer is the very end of the verse. The name of the child call his name Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? God is with us. Utsu the imanu That comes from Isaiah chapter 8, very next chapter. That's where that song, some of you know that as just a tune. Right? The sign is the child. Look what's going on. Do you remember when God turned the page for a moment? Look at Isaiah chapter 7. When the Almighty sends Isaiah to speak to Ahaz, what does he say? By the way, when you go to see Ahaz, don't go alone. I want you to take your son. And you see what he says there? Then the Lord said to Isaiah, when he's sending him to Ahaz, he says, Go to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shariyashuv. Why is God telling him to bring his son? To carry his books? 
Shar Yoshev has never been mentioned in the Bible before. He will never be mentioned again. Why is the Bible bringing this up? Why would the Almighty make such a deal that the Prophet should bring along his son Shar Yoshev? Shar Yoshev, Emmanuel, those are the names that the, of the children of Isaiah. You see, just like Hosea is given children whose names symbolically demonstrate and illustrate the demise of the kingdom of Israel, they're going to be carried off. Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Hosea, they lived at the very same time, but a different audience, because Isaiah's audience predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly was the kingdom of Judah, who we, those of you in this room who are Jewish, we all come from, his audience was going to be preserved. So therefore, oh, who's going to be your wife, Isaiah? Does anyone know who Isaiah's wife is? You're not going to know her name, but you will know what she did for a living. What did she do for a living? She was a prophetess. Not a prostitute. She's going to be in the via. What a difference. You can have kindleach, you can have children. But you know what the kid's name is? Shar Yoshev. What does Shar Yoshev mean? The remnant will be remain and will be preserved. Uh, Judah is staying holy and is going to stay with the Jewish people. And we're here today. You can have another child. You know what his name is? Imanukel. God is with us. What contrast? Do you understand? Why did I say this? Why did I bring this up? This is not really about Christianity. If I just take you, there are Jews in this room who are Christians, and you leave Christianity, and you... And, but you don't embrace the one God of Israel, what has been accomplished? I want you to understand how delicious these holy words are. I want you to understand how all the books of the Bible come together. They're a fabric. And if you understand them, oh my. Do you see what I'm saying to you? Hosea's given children, given a wife, a prostitute. Isaiah's given a wife, a prophetess. Hosea's giving children who are to the demise. Isaiah's giving children who are saying, God is going to be with you. And Shar Yoshev, you're going to remain. And we are here. It's one of the great signs. Look how these teachings of the Jewish government resonate with truth. I want you to focus on that. How does Paul change our Bible? And if you're going to do that, you expect me to invest my soul in this? Everything is at stake. I, I mentioned earlier that the book of Romans is perhaps the most important writing of Paul. It's interesting, whether you use a Ryrie study Bible or whoever else you do, there's usually a good study Bible that has a, also an annotation, a good commentary in the bottom. Usually before the book will be written, it'll tell you who was authored by, why it was authored, and what year it was authored, who it was speaking to, what are the different ideas about it, and so on. And usually when you open up an introduction to Romans, they'll say, this is the most important book that Paul ever wrote. Well, when you open the book of Galatians, in essence, the Magna Carta of Christianity, it is in essence when Christianity came unto its own and the heart of the book of Galatians is the third chapter. Galatians 3, Paul is speaking to a Gentile audience once again. An audience who we're going to see in a moment has little ability to discern the Jewish Bible. They wanted something monotheistic. They certainly were genuine. And what was happening was they were grasping on to this new Christianity. It wasn't called it then. Then it was just a heretical Judaism. They were assured they didn't have to keep the commandments. They were assured that they didn't have to do anything with these things. Don't worry, everything's okay. You're going to be my people. But you also had other Christians who were saying, wait, you've got to keep the law. You've got to get circumcised. And nothing made Paul angrier than taking a Gentile and trying to get a Gentile to do anything that was a mitzvah in the Torah. 
It's an interesting thing. The only thing that got Paul very, very upset, I mean, he wrote, by the way, against other things like Gnosticism. He wrote about other issues. But nothing made Paul angrier to try to make Gentiles a little too Jewish. That's not good. And you should know, Paul was very relaxed about other issues. What one would think, which would be much more threatening, uh, I'll give you an example, in Acts 15, which is the most important chapter in the book of Acts, it's the time when the first, in the sense, ecumenical council of the church, where they're trying to decide what is to be of Gentiles who want to become, we'll call them Christians for a moment. Well, you don't have to get circumcised, you don't have to keep the commandments. But you do have to keep some things, and one of the things that's said there is a lot of people present is, well, make sure you don't eat the meat that is offered up to idolatry. If take bring sacrifices to their idols, and there's a piece of meat left over, don't make a prime rib sandwich out of it. But later on, those of you who study the New Testament know in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, Paul says, when no one else is around, he says, well, it doesn't mean that really, and look, if you don't consider eating meat a big deal, if it was a sacrifice, he essentially, it's a real Hellenistic approach. What he says is, what's an idol? What's an idol? Nothing. It's a statue. It's a, it's a big thing, a getchka. It's a nothing sitting in the middle of a room. People look at it, they, but you know it's a stone. You know it's just gold. You know it's worthless. You know it has no, no ability. It has no divinity. It has no holiness. It has no sanctity. So if you're aware of the fact that it's worthless, it's just, a, if I may just use a pedestrian jargon, it's a dumb statue, well then I have no problem with the fact that you'll eat the meat because it really wasn't offered to anything. So whereas in Acts 15 he's saying, don't eat the... See, but it's against the Torah. You see, he doesn't have a problem with the idolatrous me because that's not inculcating Judaism. That's idolatry. So you could flirt with idolatry, but you cannot flirt with Judaism. He begins Galatians 3, screaming at the Galatians, Oh, you Galatians, who bewitched you? Who made you so meshuggah to think that you need to keep commandments? You need to keep... Don't you know by now? Don't you understand? That's not what's going to save you, but only by believing in Jesus, by faith in Jesus. That's the only thing that will save you. That's how he begins in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And verse 6, he goes into the Bible once again. And we're going to examine what he does once again with our Bible. What does he do with the Hebrew Scriptures? Who were the Galatians? Someone asked, who were the Galatians? This is a big disagreement over who were these Galatians. They were Gentiles, that's what we do know. There is a disagreement over whether this was northern Galatia or southern. Now, you say, who cares? Will they have a suntan? No suntan, what's the difference, right? <laughs> The difference has more of a question of on which journey would he have then done this on, and that would affect what year the book of Galatians was written in. If it was written to the southern part of Galatia, um, that would put this book written, I would say, about 49. If it was to the northern segment of Asia Minor, which we really don't have support for in the New Testament, there is some people who look at Acts 16 and say, it's, that's a support for it, but I think it's a little weak. Then the book is later, then the book would have been written about the year 57. But that's not relevant to us tonight. The question point is, writing to Gentiles. In the book of Galatians, it's chapter 3, verse 6, Paul begins his work on your Bible. Watch what he does. He says, all you need is faith, because all Abraham needed was faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that means all Abraham did was he just believed in God, and God considered him righteous as a result of faith, no mitzvot, no tzvillin, no Shabbos, no commandments. Know ye therefore, speaking to these Gentiles, that they which are of faith 
of the same are the children of Abraham. Now that's fancy King James. And what he's saying there is that if you have faith like Abraham did, if you essentially mirror the activity of Abraham, the, what Abraham did in his life, then you too are saved through faith through Abraham. Now he has the second piece of this thing. Watch this. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen, meaning the Gentile, through faith, preached this as well. Preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. What Paul is saying here is two points. Point number one is Abraham enjoyed God's blessings he was chosen. He became the father of election. I remember once I was speaking uh, in the South, and I'll never forget this. I, I was speaking, and a pastor came over to me. He wasn't so happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> Gentiles usually are very nice. It's the Jewish apostates that are generally very little nervous. He goes like this. He says, you Jews think you're chosen, don't you? So I asked him, tell me, where in the Jewish literature does it first say the Jews are chosen? And he said, the Bible. He said, then who are you complaining to? So, <laughs> Abraham faith, you have faith, God's going to bless you. You're going to be chosen that way. And not only that, the Bible says that all the world, all the nations, meaning the Gentiles, the King James using the term heathen, are going to enjoy the blessings of election through that. Now, the quote, if you had again, here we go again, taking a little road, if you had a Christian study Bible, it would tell you, you can find this in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 5. Take a look, and you see the arrow pointing to it. And he brought him forth outside, and said, look now toward the heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them, he said, then so shall you be. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So Abraham believed... And therefore God blessed him. What did he leave out? What does that mean that Abraham had faith? Mean he believed there was a God? It can't mean that. When Christians say have faith in Jesus, what are they saying? That means believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is Lord. Believe in the cross. Believe in the blood of the unblemished lamb. Believe in the salvation program of Christianity. Believe in Jesus. But is that what it's talking about? That Abraham believed there was a God? That can't be what it means. Because God spoke to Abraham. He heard God speak. Dr. Shapiro, line three. I mean, he... he. What does that mean that he had faith? I'll tell you what it means. It says that if you take a look at Genesis chapter 26, verse 4 and 5, you'll notice the parallelism between Genesis 15, 5 and 6 and Genesis chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. It's that strip in the gray. What does that mean? And I'll make thy seed to multiply as the stars of the heaven and will give unto thee seed all, the con- all these countries and thy seed shall be, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws oh so that's what it means it means that he trusted God and when God said leave the place where you were born in Mesopotamia which would be Iraq today I want you to leave where caused him I want you to leave that place and go to a place where I'll show you even though you were born there and that's the only place you know Abraham trusted him and followed God was it through blind faith or was it through just belief no 
What does it mean then to a Jew to have faith? What does that mean? Does faith mean that you have to believe in God and that's what it means? No, you have to know there is a God. The faith is to trust that the promises will indeed come true. If you were driving your car in the middle of the night, you know, here in Texas somewhere, and suddenly you're on a highway, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and suddenly your car breaks down, and all you got is your cellular phone, you know, and you hear the crickets going, you know, and you click the thing so all the doors lock, and, you know, you call up your best friend and says, Hey, hey, Moshe, you got to help me. I'm stuck over here. My mom, Marcus, 75, and uh, I need help, <laughs> okay? Do you have faith that your friend exists? No, you have knowledge that he exists. You have the faith and trust that he will come at four in the morning, put on his pants, get into his car, interrupt his nice slumber so that he can pull you out of trouble in the middle of the night on some dark highway here in Texas. That's what it means. Take a look further. What was he quoting from when he says, and through Abraham will all the nations be blessed? What does that mean? That they will become chosen? Doesn't mean that either. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. I will make thee into a great nation. I will bless you. This is what Paul was quoting from in Galatians. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. What does that mean? Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Does that mean they'll all become part of Israel? Does that mean they'll become part of the elect? Does that mean that they'll be chosen? Paul doesn't stop there. A little further on in Galatians 3. Now we're on Galatians 3, verse 15 and 16. Paul does something that's rather remarkable. Do you remember when the Almighty promised Abraham that his seed would enjoy manifold blessings? Do you remember that? Look what Paul does with that text. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one else sets it aside or adds additions to it. Let me explain what Paul just said, because some of you do not understand it. What, right, everyone's going, what the heck is he talking So let me explain what's going on here. What Paul is saying, even if we're talking about human issues, let's say someone um, writes a contract, you go into business with somebody, right? You open a store with someone. You have a partnership in some sort of enterprise. Well, you had to sign a contract, and you had certain responsibilities. That contract is binding. What happens if later, the, let's say the first person who started the, the practice says, wait, I'm, I'm going to change the contract, add something else in. Could you do it? Of course not. You can't tamper with the contract. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that even when it comes to human contracts between man and man, which would mean that they are not sacred, they're not holy God is not the author of these contracts, in spite of that they are held and you cannot alter them how much more so it comes to the contract and covenant the word covenant essentially means a contract, how much more so it can't be changed, take a look now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, now who spoke those those written by God, and what does it say it says, he does not say and to his seeds as referring to many but rather to one and to your seed. Isn't it interesting that when God spoke to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give, bless your seed. And he doesn't say to Abraham, I'm going to bless your seeds. Well, that must mean, Paul says, again, who is his audience? There are a bunch of Turks who are running around going, all right, let's listen to this one. I'm going to bless your seed and not your seeds. Okay, seed and not seeds. Who could that one person be? It must be speaking about one person who is going to be the center, the body of the blessing, and that has to be referring to no one else but Jesus. This is an absolute proof that God, way back, 2,000 years before Jesus, 
there is already Jesus being spoken of, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed is being spoken of in the very blessings that God is bestowing upon Abraham. And here's the quote that he's talking about. It's, it's from Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for everlasting generations, and who else besides Isaac, and with his seed after him. Well, it says seed, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to speak to the Gentiles in the audience. Wake up. You need to accept Yeshua in your life. This is the most preposterous argument used by Paul. There is no seeds in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't exist. It's like the word sheep in English. <laughs> Get me all my sheep. Well, he said sheep and not sheep. Some bring in one. <laughs> well, it's a collective noun. It's an absurdity. What are you playing with my head? What are you kidding? I mean, you look at a Jewish person who's faithful to God. I want you to think about this. Take out a moment, watch a Jew who observes the mitzvot, who lives his life, lives her life dedicated to God. You could ask them what they're doing, why they do it. It's so clear. Six days you should work and do all On the seventh day you should rest, no question. Says it very clearly. The Torah is forever, the mitzvot are forever and ever. Right? says it openly. Don't eat a big chazer, don't eat pork, it's not a good, not a good thing, Leviticus 11. It's clear! All the texts we see Christianity using, how do you play with it? By the way, for those of you who are not familiar with the Hebrew language, I, I've just given you just a collection of verses on the bottom so you can see this for yourself. I mean, let's just stay even in Genesis right in the same context of the Abrahamic covenant. Well, take a look at Genesis 13, verse 16. God is speaking to Abraham. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And by the way, that's the King James. I didn't put it in there, and the King James could hardly be a, a translation of the Bible that could be construed as friendly to Judaism. And he brought him forth. We read this before. And he brought him forth abroad. That means he took him outside and said, Look now toward heaven. Look at these stars. I'm paraphrasing. If thou be able to number them, he said, he said unto him, meaning Abraham, So shall thy seed be. How do you play with the Bible? You know that seed, and this is the same context, which is even more important. It's not just proving something linguistically. Anyone who even has a superficial knowledge of the Bible and the language it was written in would know what I'm saying. But this is the exact same context of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this idea, this technique of using the word seed, where it's speaking about the Jewish people and replacing it with Jesus. And by the way, does that sound familiar to you, using a text about Jewish people and replacing it with Jesus? Anyone sound familiar to those study subjects? Isaiah 53, Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, verses Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Are, we, are you picking up the pattern here, Matthew? Chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, 14, 13 through 15, you know, where little Jesus goes down to Egypt, right? And then, right, and this is fulfilled when he's a little child to run away from Herod the Great is trying to kill him. And he says, this is fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, right? Out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, we look at the whole verse. When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and out of Egypt have I called my son. Taking it out of context, it's talking about Israel. Replace Jesus. Isaiah 53, speaking about Israel, replace Jesus. 
speaking about the Jewish people, my seed, replace it with Jesus. Are you getting this? This is not a text quoted as evidence or as what is typically called a proof text in biblical polemic. This is not that. This is really is post-New Testament, although conceptually, although in terms of the message, it's well embedded, it's well ensconced in the New Testament. Take a look at Genesis 3.15. Again, what happened is we have a sin that has occurred in the Garden of Eden, and God then now is speaking to the snake, he is, and he's telling us how the snake, will the nochash, is going to be affected by this, and what is going on. We know that the, the curses or, the, or what was meant, how the world would change as a result. Women would give birth in pain. Men would toil the soil with the, by the sweat of their brow and so on. Well, the snake, here's what he gets. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman. When it says thee, it should say the nochosh, the snake. I'll put enmity, I'll put hatred between you, the snake, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, meaning the snake's seed and the woman's seed, and he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That means the snake will bruise the heel of man, or of the seed of the woman, but the heel of man, or the seed of the woman, is going to bruise the head of the snake. Missionaries will say this is an open prophecy about Jesus. Some of you are saying, really? This is interesting. But, you know, because, well, there's a little, you know, the church has, does, has its own its own rabbinic Judaism. I see, the, look at this audience. A squinting, what the heck is he talking about? How do they, and I look at you, this one's over here, what? He's like, it's sunny. Everybody's sunny. There's a big sun behind me. He goes, what's going on here? I'm not kidding here. You see, the seed of the woman, it says seed. It doesn't say seeds. It doesn't say her seeds. It says her seed. Well, that's singular. That must be referring to Jesus. And it says her seed. Why doesn't it say his seed, Adam's seed? Why does it refer to the woman's seed? And only her seed, it seems. Maybe that's pointing to the virgin birth. Missionaries will further say that typically, and this is the big argument, the big argument is that when we're dealing with genealogies and progeny, we don't talk about the women, we only talk about the men. It's men that are listed. Moshe Rosen in his book called Yeshua, you know, talks about that. When the Bible speaks about genealogy and progeny, it speaks of men. It doesn't speak of women. Women are not mentioned. That's not the way the Bible speaks. It's very interesting. He likes to have it both ways. Because, you know, the church tradition is Luke is the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, his mother. It's because of a big problem because they disagree. Matthew and Luke disagree on who the father of Joseph is, Haley or Jacob. So they resolve it by saying, well, Matthew's genealogy is the genealogy through Joseph. Luke's genealogy is the genealogy through Mary. And then there's no problem that it goes through him. That's okay. Now, of course, this is not this idea that this is referring to the Messiah is mentioned nowhere in the Jewish scriptures. It's mentioned nowhere in Jewish literature. I've seen some missionaries try to say, well, uh, it's spoken of by, by uh, the Targum Jonathan, uh, pseudo-Jonathan, or Targum Yershami, and I'll get to that in a moment. It's mentioned nowhere. It's not there. What they're actually saying is the purpose of the Messiah is to destroy Satan. Because remember, a snake biting the heel is, will bruise you. I think it's not poisonous. But if a snake bites you in the heel, that will bruise your heel. You're walking around like a hinkadinkle, right? Like this, right? But if you step on a snake's head, that's a fatal blow. 
So what they're saying is that this is a text that says the Messiah, Jesus, is supposed to destroy Satan. If they're going to claim then, we'll set aside the fact that this is not speaking about the Messiah, it's not mentioned in the text, it's a complete interpolation, they would never accept that from Catholics or Mormons. I heard one person say to me last week, he said, you know why God created Mormons? To give Christians an idea how Jews feel. <laughs> I mean, if the function of the Messiah, if Genesis, let's just ignore the fact this is not biblical for a moment. Let's just ignore the fact it's stated nowhere in the text. But just for, if this is what the Messiah, and I've given you two texts from the New Testament, which talks about the fact the function of Jesus is to destroy the devil. So it's not a direct quote, but it certainly is one that point one is pointed to the other. Then isn't this just one more thing that Jesus did not fulfill? I mean, it doesn't nurture a belief in Jesus. It doesn't nurture conversion to Christianity. It diminishes it from it. Because now, not only didn't Jesus create the resurrection of the dead, the ingathering of the exiles, world peace, universal knowledge of God, the building of the third temple, but now we've got another one, and that is he didn't destroy Satan because Satan is alive and well and doing a perfect job. You're not sure? Go to Washington. You'll find out. Many Christians say to me, well, it means for non-believers. Satan's for non-believers. The, 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 Satan is still a, a force to deal with. For believers, then Satan is destroyed. Which, of course, is silly. Because Christians have to deal with Satan, and they do deal with Satan, and so on. And I showed it to you on the, on the bottom of this box in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul says, he says, you know, I was going here, but Satan hindered me. I mean, he's got to deal with Satan too. And this is after the crucifixion. Clearly, this hasn't happened. But you've got to have faith. You've got to have faith that Jesus has destroyed. Jesus, and this is a very important message of Paul, Jesus has undone the sin of Adam. In essence, one of the messages we find throughout the letters of Paul, Philippians and so on, is that Adam failed and Jesus was in essence the next Adam. He undid, he corrected what, 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 what Adam blew. Isn't it interesting, just want to think about this for a moment, isn't it interesting that somehow all the things that Jesus changed as a result of his dying on the cross are things that you can't see, that you can't know, that you can't touch, you can't see, you can't hear, and all the things that he has done, supposedly, all the things that he hasn't done yet are things that, you know, let me give you an example. You know, one of the curses also is to, that the women have, give, give birth in pain. Well, why do women then, if he undid the curse that occurred in the Garden of Eden and the curse that God bestowed on, on, on Eve and her seed, well, why don't women, babies just pop out? That should be all the, uh, you take, you know, epidurals and throw them in the garbage. Why do, I'm sorry? Yeah. Some do what? Some pop out. What, who are you to say what pops? Who are you, a big macher? Leave it to a man to talk about, yeah, they pop. They're popping, they're doing, you know. <laughs> Why isn't, you know, pickles just growing out of the ground? You know? Why isn't bread just coming out of the earth? Why are we still got to use all this technology to get these things out of the ground? I mean, if Jesus undid it, why didn't he do the things that we'd be able to see? Oh, but you have to have faith. Isn't that interesting? But the Bible says when the Messiah comes, the whole world will know it. Isaiah chapter 11 doesn't say that, in fact, when it happens, no one's going to know. It says, oh no, the knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea. You'll be able to see it yourself. It's right out there. 
one more thing he didn't accomplish. Everything he did supposedly accomplish, I can't tell. Everything he didn't accomplish, I could tell. Just a coincidence? It's, by the way, a silly argument that the seed of a woman, that a woman would never be spoken of as having seed. I, I've just given you one example. Then i just like you to look at it. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 20. Just an example. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord has given the seed of this woman. Of course, it's a silly argument. Seed is a collective noun. In fact, I'm sure many of you know that Adam had a lot of trouble naming his wife. Some of you may have that. But th- he had a lot of trouble with that. He was able to look at all the animals and say, this is a chamor, this is a, you know, this is a kelev, this is a katul, you know, a cat. This is a, when he came to his wife, he says, my, I just don't, I'm not sure what to call her. Yeah. But immediately after these curses, when God indicated Eve and her central role as the mother of mankind, he named her Eve because he knew that from this, he knew that her central role was the mother of all of mankind, the mother of all of us. This curse, the curse is a very simple one. There is a very literal sense, the curse is on a snake. We could take this in a very literal sense, just plain. The curse is on a snake, the snake is most hated. And we see it today. There's no animal that people are more aghast and more loathe than a snake. That's why whenever we see someone walking around with a snake around his neck, we'll look at the Meshuggah with the snake right away. Right? <laughs> why? It's not the most dangerous thing, and more people I'm sure are killed by, by I don't know, by, by, cat, by uh, lions and tigers and bears. Or I mean, there are people <laughs> killed by other things more than snakes. But snake is loathsome, almost universally loathsome. But that's just the plain sense, because the snake is symbolic of Satan. And what does God say? God says, yes, the sudden wants you. Matter of fact, in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, the Almighty says, this is right after the curse of Adam and Eve. What does God say? He says, look, Satan wants you. You're his desire. He doesn't come to you open like this. He's hiding by the door. You're his desire, but you can conquer him. You can master over him. In Christian theology, this is absolutely impossible. Yet that's the curse. Although the snake can just bite your heel, he can give you, he can be a speed bump in your journey to God. You can master over him. You can crush his head. I, I want to end off this evening's program with two questions that I get a lot. He was, he's here tonight. He asked me this question a while back. I don't see him with so many people in here. You know, how did Matthew and Paul get away with this? Remember that? I mean, how did they get away with this? 1.7 billion Christians. That's why Jews, I think, are so impressed. Jews are impressed with numbers. 1.7 billion must be a big hit. It must be something, right? <laughs> so Jews are appreciate numbers. They do. We're, that's why we're accountants. We appreciate a good number. 1.7 billion can't be so bad, right? How did they get away with such a thing? That's what Jews, how did he get away with such a thing? And, uh, that's what they, and the second thing they asked me, now they would never, no Jew, now we're going to take questions for you in a moment, but I can assure you, no Jew would ever ask this in a mixed crowd like this, because this crowd is no more than half Jewish, I would imagine, just looking around. So no Jew is going to say this, but when the crowd is only Jews, so I'm doing a Hadassah meeting, I always get this question, like goes like this. The question is, what are these Christians, a bunch of idiots? That's how the question goes. Are they all crazy? Are all these Christians so stupid that they can believe such a thing? How do they believe it? I mean, there must be, I'm sure many Christians don't, but there must be Christians who are knowledgeable. There must be, there are Christians who went to school, and they study, and they go to, to university, and they study more, right? And they read the scripture. It's very true, it's a tragedy. I said this, I said this many times, but I, I was traveling once, I was lecturing in L.A., I did, took Delta Flight 1997, that's JFK LAX, look it up. 
and it's on an L1011. When I came here to Dallas, it was an MD-80. You all know because you will, any of you, you know, that's the American flies that are the typical cities. MD-80, 2 and 3, and that's it for following. This was an L1011. It's a Kanaka Digger plane, wide body, two aisles. You know what I'm talking about? Nice one. Have you ever been on the little one? I went to Knoxville for BBYO. Have you been on the little teeny plane with the propellers? You've done this? <laughs> oh, yeah, bro. I went on this little plane, only window seats, just window seats. And as soon as you walk out to the plane, everybody's davening the davening, right? As soon as you get out. You notice this? Right away, people are sitting there. Which idiot got me on this plane? How come my traveling didn't tell me? They're looking, they're cursing. I don't know what, they don't know what to do first. And then everyone gets more nervous because immediately then the stewardess gets on. She gives a cook. She gives a look around. She, then she starts like this. Too many fat people on this side. Too many skinny people on this side. You've got to move it around a little bit. Wait up. This does not nurture confidence. I don't want to think that if I go like this, we're going to wind up in Chicago. You understand? I, I, you know, the L-1011 is nice because you don't even know you're flying. You're not sure you're there. You came, you went, but nobody's sure. So it's nice. You get on L-1011. So the first thing is the steward is standing right by the mezuzah as soon as you walk in. And she looks at the boarding pass. They don't trust you somehow. Even though they checked you 15 times, asked you a million questions about your family history and about how many cancer and any kind of question you left. Soon as you get on the plane, like you snuck on from the, from the, from the, where did I, from the tarmac, I snuck in somehow. She again wants to see my thing. She doesn't believe me I'm 19F. No, she has to see. So she, she looks and she says, you have to go down the first aisle, not the second. First aisle, because you can go down either one. So I'm walking down the aisle. I got my boarding pass in my hand. And I'm looking up to my left from my seat and I'm looking at the numbers. I suddenly look down to my left. I see someone reading a Bible. I knew it was a Christian. Why? Because my right, there was a Jew reading the Wall Street Journal. You understand? <laughs> it's true. Christians do study the Bible. So we should be ashamed of ourselves. Are they stupid? How could they believe this? In fact, now you see it come together. Who is Matthew's audience? Jews. Matthew utterly fails in his attempt to evangelize the Jewish people. Who is Paul speaking to Gentiles who had no ability of discernment? What does he do? He succeeds. Why do Christians believe this? Don't they see it? Haven't they studied? Don't they know about Alma? Don't they know about... Are they really... Are they stupid? No. What's really happening, and listen carefully, what's really happening is they are understanding the Jewish Bible in light of the New Testament. What they are simply doing is they are interpreting Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, in light of the teachings of the Christian Bible, and therefore they believe in Jesus in spite of how the text has been manipulated. Jewish people, on the other hand, understand the New Testament in light of the Jewish scriptures and therefore utterly reject Christianity. What is a disaster for Christendom is that the Jewish Bible can be true and the Christian Bible false. The Christian Bible can't be true and the Jewish Bible false. That's impossible. And therefore, where do you start? You start with the New Testament to understand the Jewish Bible in light of it? That's silly. And you can go to the Book of Mormon. You can go to the Book of anything. There is an a priori that means start with the Jewish Bible. Talking about Jewish Bible, just so you understand this point, that's why the order of the canon is so different. This will just bring it for you to understand it. As many of you know, the order of the books in the Jewish Bible, as they might appear in a, of what Christians call the Old Testament, is in a different order in a Christian Bible than a Jewish Bible. Different order. Many people ask me why. How did that happen? Just very simply to explain, if we're Jewish people in the Jewish Bible, there are three sections of Scripture. That's why the Jewish Scriptures are referred to as Tanakh. And that's an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and then the Prophets, 
And then the writings. Writings include the messages of, of the book of Psalm and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and so on. But in the Christian Bible, it's not organized that way. In a Christian Bible, immediately after the books of First and Second Kings, which is essentially one book, the Ksuvim, Psalms and Proverbs and Job and, and all this, is put in there, inserted. And then after that, we go to the latter prophets, namely Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and then the 12 minor prophets and so on. Why? Why is this done this way? The answer is very simple. If you look at the Jewish scriptures, you look at the prophets, you look at First and Second Samuel, you see people who succeeded, righteous men, like Asa, like Josiah, like King David, like Abraham, and you see people who failed, Menashe, Yeruvim ben Yavot, many others. You want to know why they succeeded? You want to know what went on? Take a look at the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah will tell you about your sins, your iniquity. The book of Jeremiah will tell you that you have sinned against me. The book of Hosea will say you're like a prostitute. You've turned your back on me. You've turned to another God. You've turned to another man. You've turned to another husband. Do you want to know how to heal? Do you want to know how to find righteousness? Read the book of Psalms. There's the answer. Why did he succeed? Why did King David succeed? And why did Menashe fail? Open up the book of Proverbs, it will tell you. But you see, the church did not want you to look for the answer in the book of Psalms. It didn't want you to finish the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and so on, and then say, okay, let's find out how to do it right. Let's go to the book of Psalms. It wants you to go immediately to the book of Matthew. Let Matthew tell you, let Paul tell you, and therefore alter the Jewish scriptures. Then alter the whole salvation program. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you read the book of Isaiah, that will, tell you, that will tell you that there's a problem. When you read the book of Psalms, it'll tell you the answer. You want to know how to come close to God? Korev Hashem L'chol Korev. The Almighty is close, not those who believe in Jesus. Korev Hashem L'chol Korev. God is close to all those who call out to Him in truth. This has been a very, very special evening. What an amazing crowd you are. I thank you for being here. Have a very good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.